From People.ai, this is the Legends of Sales and Marketing podcast. Each week, we'll dive into a story from a different legend of sales and marketing to find out how they changed the game. Visit people.ai slash legends for more episodes, interviews, and profiles on more of these icons of sales and marketing. To me, your identity should be you. You know, it's the person you are, the values you have, the beliefs you have, what how you like to create, what you like to create. The rest is transient. Hi, everyone. Justin Schreiber here. My guest today is Rashmi Chatterjee, CEO of Istari and former CMO of IBM North America. As the daughter of a member of the Indian Air Force, Rashmi got used to a transient lifestyle. She moved nine times as a child. And while many girls would have been traumatized by the experience, Rashmi credits it as one of the reasons she's thrived on the global business stage. On today's podcast, Rashmi shares stories about finding the confidence to lead massive organizations, embrace risk, and take strong positions on issues without burning bridges. Let's jump into the conversation. Rashmi, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. And thank you for having me here. Well, it's a real pleasure. And actually, we were introduced by Rachel Powell, a previous guest on the program. She had some wonderful things to share, experiences that she'd had with you early in her career. And so we're excited to have you on the show and learn a little bit from some of your experience and wisdom. I wanted to start off, as we always do, though, with your childhood. You had a very interesting upbringing, given the fact that your father was in the Air Force. Can you tell us a little bit about how that impacted your early days? Yeah, my father was in the Indian Air Force. He was a pilot. Um, I mean, the biggest impact was we moved a lot. You know, I went to nine schools and through my through my school years. It helps because you adjust quickly. You feel you learn to fit in. I also think you kind of uh, you're able to absorb different cultures, different environments, very effortlessly. Um, The difficulty is you're always in survival mode. You know, if you're moving every two years, you're readjusting every two years. So you don't, as a young person, you don't have that cocoon of support infrastructure that you could have had. Uh, But I think overall, it was great. I've moved all around the world after that. And um, I love it. I, I love the fact that quite quickly, I'm able to settle down. So you were actually exposed to many different cultures, many different walks of life early in your early in your your life. Yes. Did you come up with any kinds of coping mechanisms or strategies that you would use when you found yourself in a new place just to start to assimilate? You know, I'm a friendly person and I'm also quite a curious person. I'm very curious to know more about people. I love um, love understanding new new things, food, um, reading, movies, uh, discussing. So I think I learned. You know, it helps that you're able to know the right conversations to get comfortable with people. I'm not a. It helped me. I think not become very introverted or reserved. Um, so you know, just knowing the neutral topics. To engage with people and getting to know them better, that um, that was a good sort of supporting mechanism for me as we moved around. 
That is such a simple piece of advice, but it's powerful. There's actually a great book out there. It's it's a classic at this point called How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And one of the quotes, I don't believe he came up with it, but I can't remember who he attributed it to, is talk to people about themselves and they'll listen to you forever. Yeah. And that one idea that if you're just willing to be curious and ask people about themselves, regardless of where you are on the planet, you'll always be able to carry on a conversation with someone. Yeah. I, at one point in my career, had the opportunity to interview Shaquille O'Neal, who's a famous basketball player here in the United States. He also grew up in a military family. He was constantly moving around. And he was, today, he's a huge person. As an adolescent, he was a huge person. He would always stick out. His strategy for fitting in is he learned how to dance. And he said, when I got into a group of people and the music started, I would start to dance and then I would immediately be accepted in because I was part of what was happening. But I think whether it's it's talking to people about themselves, dancing with people, that ability to enter into the flow of what's happening with a certain group of people, that really is the key to being able to get plugged into to a new group. Yeah, that's true. And of course, he has achieved a lot more. So I should have learned how to dance. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's still time. There's still time. All right. So you had this experience early on where you were exposed to a lot of people, a lot of cultures. I'm sure that that helped you to build a foundation of confidence. I've also, I also know that uh, the relationships in your life were really important. And I wanted to talk a little bit about your parents, but also your husband, whom I believe you met in college. Can you talk a little bit about those relationships and how they helped you? Yes. So, you know, my parents, um, I just, I mean, they, they're my role models. Um, They are very supportive. They're always there when you need them. And somehow, interestingly, I don't think they pushed us too much. They're not very ambitious about us. I think they would have been quite happy if I had not chosen to become a professional. You know, it was really be well-behaved and be kind, etc. So no, they were just it just they just taught me unconditional support anytime they um it was very yeah so I think and they were very empowering. My mother is actually for her generation uh, has always said you have to work, you must work, you must be independent. So I think for her generation she was unusual. In time she took to teach us and to make us successful. Um, they have a huge impact on me. Even today, I just think it's a safe place always. Um, my husband, we met in college many, many years back. Uh, actually, uh, went to engineering school, so he was my senior. And I think the impact that, you know, when we both met, we were students. I think since then, and it's been many decades, it's always just treated me as an equal. He's always... Uh, understood that this is a professional person uh, and easier said than done when you're together for many, many years, you have children, two professions, you know, it's a test on um, on equality or equal um, importance to each other's careers. Uh, but he just fundamentally has always believed that for me, for our daughter. And um, I think now, it wasn't something I thought about when I met him. You know, I was 18 and just 
just a nice person and felt nice and comfortable and great sense of humor. Now I look back and I would not have been able to follow um, the trajectory I have if I hadn't got that support. This is a topic that I know is front and center for many individuals and relationships. You've got two different people, often highly motivated, ambitious, pursuing their professional dreams, but also trying to build a world together. As you and your husband developed your own relationship, but also as your careers developed, what are some of the strategies that you employed to be able to strike the right balance between supporting one another and also focusing on your individual career interests? Yeah. And of course, it's more complicated, obviously, when you also have families, right? Children, parents. So first thing I I do want to say is it is not easy, you know, at, at no point should any I don't believe this is an easy um, answer. And it's also every family will have their own ways of coping. I think in our case, very simple things. I can't remember how many times I have kind of said, this is too much and I want to leave. And one very simple rule we made is that we'll wait. If I feel like that, sure, that choice is always there, but let's wait to have the conversation a month from now. So try not to act in impulse because, you know, when you are a mother and you're working full time, there are a lot of times that it feels impossible, but three weeks later, things don't seem so bad. So I think that was a simple rule that we always kept the window open of exploring if this is not, if this is not right for the family, then, you know, we, we don't have to stick with it but also not to respond at a moment of stress or a moment that you're feeling frustrated. And that was one. The second is, you know, both of us uh, at one point, while the children were still in school, we were doing uh, leading our businesses for Asia Pacific. So there was a lot of travel. We made it a policy never to be out together. Uh, We actually had for many, many years, an email that went between both of us called calendar and tasks which would list out when we are traveling, when who's traveling, what are the children's dates, you know, what are the tasks that need to be done over the over, over time and who's doing that. Uh, it sounds like a terribly me- mechanical way, but it was good because you weren't calling or sort of getting into the day. You kind of had this thing that you kept looking at. Whenever you had time, you try to finish off the tasks. And, you know, the, the children's calendars were always populated first, uh, parent-teacher days, etc. And then around that, we just had to work. We made sure that one of us was always there. And for some of the important things, obviously, both of us were always there. So simple tools. uh, But again, I find that they help because often when I see somebody give up, it's at a time that may be abnormal in their career. A lot of great advice there. And many executives that I've talked to have shared similar ideas. First and foremost, if the family is important to you, if the relationship is important to you with your with your significant other, put that at the center and then build the other components around it. I know of one executive, actually Mike Gamson, who was recently on the show, who would take his family on the road. And when he had a business trip, they would travel with him. Now, obviously, everyone can't do that and isn't in the position. I think the lesson there, though, is he was willing to be creative and think outside of the box about how he could keep his family central and still do the other professional responsibilities that he had. 
Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we'll jump back into the conversation. Welcome back. You're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing, and I'm your host, Justin Schreiber. Let's get back to the discussion. At least at the beginning of your relationship, there was a little bit of an asymmetrical dimension to your profession versus your husband's profession. I believe he was a banker and his career kind of took off out of the gate. Whereas, you know, at some point your, your career hit an inflection point, but it wasn't on the same trajectory initially as his. And yet he was still very supportive of you. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so first of all, when we started working for many years, um, seven, eight years, he was a banker and I was in the government. So our compensation was vastly different. He was earning much more than me. Uh, but again, you know, that is one of the reasons I respect him very much is I never felt that. It was two people doing two jobs, trying to build something. And um, it, they, we never had a conversation. Actually, we may be unusual again, uh, for, but we've always, everything money-wise is always joint. So yeah. we never thought about it, whether who's earning more, etc. Obviously, there is common sense. So, you know, when he got an opportunity to move to Hong Kong, I moved. I went on to contract work because I wanted to free up some time to help the children adjust. But then when that was done, I went back to full time. So, yeah, in the beginning, I think his career was moving and I always worked full time. And IBM is, was not, you know, it's it's a demanding job. Uh, but, uh, and then, uh, you know, but we made small compromises like, as I said, we he got then he moved from Hong Kong. We he got a job offer in uh, Thailand. I moved there. IBM supported me, which was very. I mean, IBM was, is an extraordinary company that way in supporting the longevity of a career. Uh, so there were little adjustments, but I feel that when my son, my younger child, left to go to university, that was really a time that I put a lot more energy into my career and, you know, the trajectory changed. Uh, but all through the earlier years, we still operated as equals. There was you know, never a discussion about somebody's meeting being more important or somebody's travel being more important. I often think that people are, are much like seeds. You plant them, some seeds germinate immediately and bear fruit. I think of an acorn, which ultimately gives rise to an oak tree, a much longer germination, but ultimately um, a, a phenomenal outcome. You obviously rose to the ranks, chief marketing officer, head of sales at IBM, CEO now. And that was an investment, a long-term investment that you and your husband made in that career. I think too often people fall into the trap of looking today at what the earning potential of one individual is versus another and making decisions based on that rather than taking the long view and recognizing the potential that both individuals represent. Yeah, actually, you use a very good word, investment. So I also think that your career, two careers, it's 40, 45 years, maybe more nowadays. And so you have to think at what point you want to invest what. You know, sometimes it's adjustment of time. Sometimes it's investing for a little extra help or support, uh, but that's a good word that um, in a period of a career uh, or a professional employment, you just need to balance and you have to think of many things as an investment. Absolutely. Well, let's shift gears and talk a little bit about your education. 
fascinating background as well. You started off being educated largely in convent schools. Can you talk a little bit about what a convent school was and what that experience was like? Yeah, if you have Indian listeners uh, who grew up in India, they'll be very familiar. So there's a number of, um, you know, very high quality schools across India that are run by missionaries and um, single sex. So I um, spent most of my life, I think other than one and a half years or something, I was in a convent school, which was all girls. Yeah, (laughs) you know, those were good schools, great education. In India at that time, you know, English medium meant something because uh, the the education was in English. You learned uh, grammar, etc. But yeah, I spent almost all my life, school life in convent schools. So I can still recite many (laughs) prayers and (laughs) yeah. Those things we learn as children stick with us. So here you are in a convent school, mostly female educators, you're with your peer group of girls, then you become, uh, you move on to an advanced degree in engineering, a very different environment in that case. What what was that like? So firstly, you know, I didn't think about it. Um, You know, I kind of knew I I was very good at math and I wanted to do science and applied for the engineering college. It's very, um, it's very selective college. Once I got there, I didn't realize the minority, uh, how much women would be in minority. I go there and we are less than 1%. And it was a shock because, as I said, I come, I was always in convent schools, surrounded by girls, even socially, because my dad was in the Air Force. You know, it's a very, uh, it's a, the, uh, we used to live in Air Force camps. So there's a lot of mixing between boys and girls and lots of good friends. And I come to this environment where we are less than 1% uh, population. Shock. It was a shock. I didn't know what it hit me and how, how I was supposed to behave. You know, how do you avoid getting noticed? Um, yeah, it was a shock. So you are one of four or five girls or women at this, this school. What were the strategies that you used in order to cope with the pressures that inevitably arose from that? You know, we really had each other's back. And Uh to date, uh, many, many decades later, we still have each other's back. So I think that was the most important strategy, that we were just there for each other. The second one was, um, obviously, one strategy was also that all four, four of us very quickly got paired up with four boys who were couple of years as senior, that's very, uh, happens a lot in IIT. So we did get into a sort of, uh, we developed that safe space, you know, back in the room with uh, friends and, uh, and then you sort of, you learn to take it in your stride. You, you know, you actually get used to it and you discover, you become, you get a very good sense on who to trust because many of the boys at IIT were so supportive and so, so empathetic and uh, you learn to know who to trust, learn to build your cohort. Um, Actually, it could have been four very difficult years, but I have very good memories of those engineering years. I've talked to women who have been in different situations, but describe similar lessons. One woman in particular that I'm thinking of, Erica Schultz was also a guest on the show. 
she talks about being on the swim team in high school. And there were a lot of guys on that swim team. And she said, I needed to get comfortable being in an environment where there were a lot of guys and I was interacting with them. And I was able to build confidence in myself, in my abilities, but I also was able to build real friendships. And as you said, find people that I could trust who are my allies. And I walked away from that experience realizing I can be successful among this group of people. And she said later in life in sales, obviously we still live in a world where a lot of, lot of men in sales, but she said, I was used to being successful in those kinds of environments. And also what she said is kind of to your point, I was able to take in stride the fact that maybe I was a minority because I knew that I could stand and be successful. Yeah. I think that, and I honestly do, since then, I've always believed a lot in um, the communities women create. You know, women supporting women, backing up for women, understanding them. It's very powerful because sometimes you, yes, you can take it in your stride and you will do well and, you know, you'll get the respect, but sometimes you just want to hang out with somebody and have a sort of nice, easy afternoon. And I think women friends have always been very important to me. That's Rashmi Chatterjee, CEO of Istari. When we come back, Rashmi talks about her surprising decision to launch her career by joining the Indian Navy as deputy director and the reason that role set her up for success later in life. Stay with us. I'm Justin Schreiber, and you're listening to Legends of Sales and Marketing. By the time Rashmi entered the professional world, she was used to cutting her own path. As an engineering student, she was one of only a handful of women at one of India's top technical institutions. So when she signed on with the Indian Navy, working in a virtually all-male organization was second nature. To her credit, she discovered a way to flourish by delivering great results, finding allies, and exhibiting a so fair you're bit of flexibility. You graduated, Let's get back to the discussion. You joined the Navy. <laughs> what was that like? <laughs> Another shock. <laughs> I went, I think, to an even further degree of minority. <laughs> you know, I must be glutton for punishment. No, but um, I went um, again. I was the first woman to join the Indian Navy as an engineer. But you know, the same rules. I had amazing colleagues. They taught me a lot. Uh, I had a boss, uh, you know, Admiral Mohan Raman, and I still remember. He, I think, didn't really care if I was female or male. He just needed me to get my job done and taught me so much in that, you know, the structured way of thinking. And Navy was lovely. We were, um, you know, it's a, unlike uh, private organizations, um, Navy is, is all about team. You, you learn to work together. You, there's no point always competing with each other. You are, it's really quite a team. Um, team building area. It was a very exciting project. The Indian Navy was setting up their first CAT CAM center. So we built the business case, got the technology, skilled the people. It was really, a, it's a wonderful uh, 10 years I was in the Navy. Again, made some good friends. And again, there'll always be, um, you know, a big community that is cute, puzzled by why you as a woman doing this or judge. I doesn't bother me. I think once you have your, once you kind of understand what you need to get done work-wise, 
and you understand the people who will help you do it and who you can learn from, you feel very comfortable. I just want to pause because I've noticed something as you've shared all of these stories. You tend to focus on the positive. You carry with you the good memories. I know that you've also experienced opposition and challenge, but it seems like for you, that's the focus is what are the what are the positive things that I've I've carried with me as a result of these experiences? Yeah, I am a positive person. I don't know if that's good or bad. Uh, you know, the negatives were there, but I really do feel that you grow because of that. You know, you and you. Be, I hope that I become more empathetic to others because I've been in those difficult spots and I know what it feels like to be an odd one out or the person who's thinking differently or is looking different. So, yeah, I don't dwell on that too much. Um, it was an unusual uh, college experience and it was definitely an unusual first job experience. Well, you enter IBM with a wonderful foundation. As a child, you've traveled around, you've learned to acclimate to different cultures, work with different groups of people. You've been a minority and yet you've been able to be successful and develop that inner confidence. And now you arrive at IBM. Now, ultimately, you'll hold chief marketing roles, chief sales roles, but there is a journey from point A to point B before you finally get to those final positions. Can you talk a little bit about some of the highlights and some of the learnings along the way for you? Yeah, I think the first uh, thing I really believe in, I'm very comfortable taking risks. I don't feel I have ever wanted every single aspect of a job to be defined to me. I kind of uh, go a little bit by instinct, but also very strong sense of what's happening in the market. Um, so one of the reasons, you know, I moved around a lot and even within IBM, but if there was something interesting happening and somebody said, Rashmi, do you want to come and do this? I wouldn't sit down and say, so tell me exactly, you know, what will this job look like? And how am I going to be measured and how much, I know all that is important, but I have personally always been very comfortable taking a bit of risk. And this is again, where I think the, you know, my husband is very comfortable supporting the risk. He's also an adventurous person. So anytime either of us had something that came up that sounded interesting, but it was, you know, a lot of it was not known. This is moving across countries from India to Hong Kong, to Thailand, to Singapore, to New York, now to the UK. We said, all right, you know, what's the worst case? Um, we've got our qualification. We've got our experience. Let's go with it. So I do, uh, one of my learnings is taking a little bit of risk and building the role you're taking is, is quite exciting. You can define, you know, rather than let the role define you, it's nice to be able to sit and define what you want the role to be. That was one um, learning. Uh, took a lot of risks. I think we, I'm very adventurous, curious, as I said, curious about, and really like to progress the agenda. You know, I don't want to sound very mighty, but I think there's, there's so much, there's a lot of modern ways of doing things. I love to be part of that, uh, you know, learn from others, get influenced. Um, you, when Rachel and I worked together, we were trying, all of us in that group in marketing, trying to really get marketing up 
on the agenda to say, excuse us, we know the market, listen to us, we are the headlights of the business. No, we're not some campaign executors only. And uh, it was fun to build that, to get that business respect. Uh, and that has happened many times. So I think taking risk, um, you know, thinking forward, how do you solve a problem? What is the problem that's going to come? What's holding us back? That has sort of, I would say, defined a lot of the journey that I took. You know, a lot of times people on the show will talk about taking risks and the way that they paid off in spades. I've also noticed, though, that there's a difference in terms of the risks that these people take versus rolling the dice in Las Vegas and hoping that your your payday comes in. What I notice about these kinds of risks, first of all, the people that are making them are very well informed. You're steeped in an industry. You're a curious person. You're constantly learning. You're constantly asking questions. You mentioned instinct, but those instincts are informed by a lot of background and experience. They're also surrounded by people who are astute, who are curious, and who are giving them good advice. So when they take those risks, there's actually a lot behind the risks. And that's what informs the instinct that ultimately moves them on to another great thing. That's exactly right. Um, It is not instinct, but it's living daily with a sense of, um, yeah, insights and advice and surrounding yourself with people who are are curious, uh, looking at what the future could be, where the trends are going. So I agree with you that it sounds as risky, but it's probably less risky. Gary Briggs was on the show recently. Uh, He's the former CMO of Facebook. And he talks about a moment in his career where things were languishing. And he went to a party. He happened to know Sheryl Sandberg because he was at eBay. And so he was using uh, Google AdWords. And Sheryl at the time was in charge of that business. So they had a relationship. So he went to this party and he saw Cheryl and he said, Cheryl, I'm just not happy. My job isn't really going anywhere. And Cheryl said, Gary, you should come in and work for me at this company that I recently joined called Facebook. Now, of course, today we, we think of, wow, CMO at Facebook, of course I would take that job. It was a risky move at the time though. But Gary had these relationships. He knew Cheryl, Cheryl he trusted Cheryl. He was in the space and he knew that there was this moment that was going to be happening around social and his instinct said, go for that job. That's going to be a good job. That's usually the way that it works. Yeah. And actually, it's very true. I think the person you're going to work for or the organization, it's important. If you feel a sense of faith and trust, you know, on shared values, I, I would I would give that a lot of importance. Now, Rachel, when she was on the program, said that one of your superpowers is an ability to listen to people, listen to their ideas, disagree with what they're saying, if you don't necessarily think it's a good idea, but do so in a way that's non-confrontational and constructive. And ultimately, that person walks away feeling good about the conversation they've had. How do you do that? I want to understand this because this is something that I'd like to incorporate into my own uh, motion. You should have grown up being a girl in India. <laughs> <laughs> you learn to, uh, if you want to get your own way, you learn to be tactful and polite. I know, but um, so firstly, I like solving problems and I don't believe in status quo. I don't believe 
if somebody says, well, it's never been done in the past, that is not something that's good enough normally, as uh, I would challenge that. Uh, but I also don't think of any discussion as winning or losing um, or stripe pulling. I think a good discussion is one where you can share your points and make an intelligent decision based on different perspectives. So, and, and I also don't believe that your insights become necessarily, are necessarily better because you hold a certain title or because you know, you've been entitled to a better education, all that matters. But in the end, you know, I like getting all perspectives. I think you make better decisions. And, um, you know, this is all maybe, again, as I said, moving around a lot, being very, very comfortable with people. I am I'm very comfortable. You put me in any new environment, I, I'm very comfortable to understand uh, different perspectives. So maybe that is uh, what Rachel is talking about that, um, you know, and I also really never believe in life that things are, you've got to win it all or lose it all. I hmm. think you can work together and making a little progress is good. You know, it sounds so easy, but in many case can, cases can be so hard to separate an idea from your own self-esteem. And I think that's where many people go wrong is, this is my idea, therefore, this is my identity. And if you attack the idea, you're attacking me. What I hear you saying is you're comfortable separating the two. You just want to get to the best ideas, the best outcomes. You're confident in who you are aside from the ideas and the conversation. And because of that, you're able to really be in the moment and talk about the idea and, and not make the people feel like you're attacking them. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's true. But I also actually you use a very interesting word, identity, right? And I've noticed over time that sometimes certain things become people's crutches for identity. You know, um, it could be an idea, it could be a position, it could be a title, it could be where you graduated. To me, your identity should be you. You know, it's the person you are, the values you have, the beliefs you have, what, how you like to create, what you like to create. The rest is transient. Um, so I, I think that the word that you used was an interesting word. I like it. So you now have a, a kind of a, a new identity, CEO. You've had many titles. And I think I know where you're going to take this question, but how has that impacted your identity and how do you how do you treat that role as the CEO? What do you what do you view as your primary responsibilities as the CEO? Yeah, I'm the CEO of a new business that we're setting up. Um, you know, it it doesn't impact my identity, but it gives me a lovely chance to create something, and it's something that I believe in. It's a space that's very exciting. So how to how does it um, you know, for me, the most exciting part about this role is after working for many years in sales and marketing and engineering, to get a chance to build something that is going to be extraordinary and differentiated, really client-centric. I love it. I love that. And again, I think sometimes when I say I don't like the status quo, I think people have over time made, made very rigid lines. You know, this is sales, this is marketing. Sure, you know, there are attributes that work better with marketing, the attributes that work better with sales. 
at, but eventually business is all of this coming together and aligning. And the more you understand each area and the more you understand the market and where you want to go, uh, that is very empowering. So I'm loving uh, not the title necessarily. I'm happy with the title. It's uh, it's uh, it's good, uh, but I'm excited that I'm able to use what I've learned to create and build and really lead uh, this value that we are taking to market. I think the big other difference is that um, you know I always have felt that I was good at surrounding myself with very good people. And actually giving them a lot of room to disagree with me. Uh, I'm very comfortable with debate. I understand that as a CEO, the decision is eventually mine. But I, I don't like to create an environment where somebody is frightened to speak up. So, um, yeah, so, yeah, it's good. I like it. Let me end with my final question, which is if you're to look back across your life and think about all of the things that have impacted it, what is that one thing you feel that has made the biggest difference in your life? I think my marriage. I think um, given me a lot of strength. Wonderful answer. Well, it's been a great conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in today to Legends of Sales and Marketing. For more inspiring stories about how today's most influential sales and marketing execs got their start and made their mark, be sure to check out the full lineup of guests. Listen and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you find interesting conversations. This podcast is brought to you by People.ai. People.ai auto-populates CRM with business activity sourced directly from sales teams and boxes. Visit People.ai to learn more about how sales and marketing teams can harness business activity to unlock growth.